Welcome to Business School. My name is Stephen Cool. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Burrow, a direct-to-consumer furniture brand. And I am Phineas Ellis, the co-founder of Stereotype Studio, a podcast production company. This is a show where we talk about startup culture. And today we have a really exciting guest. Before we introduce them, I want to sort of introduce the topic, which is I think the startup community is notorious for just telling the good stories just sensationalizing the quote unicorn companies and we spend a lot of time talking about how they make it how they scale rapidly and how they're all pushing high valuations there aren't that many stories about the companies that don't make it and the reasons behind why they don't make it today we have a guest on that has experienced what it's like to have a successful business and have it not make it for one reason or the other and I'll pass it off to you, Stephen, to introduce the guest. Yeah, so I've known Josh Bobrowski for a couple of years now, who's the founder, CEO of Ignitia Office. Josh, thank you for joining us today. If you wouldn't mind, start off by telling us a little about yourself and tell us about Ignitia Office. What was it like before COVID? Sure. Thanks for having me on the show, guys. Really excited to be here. So kind of serial entrepreneur, it moved to New York City with a suitcase, didn't really uh, have any place to stay. So picked up an Airbnb with like three other shared people in the middle of Brooklyn somewhere. And uh, it came with like a pitch deck, four shirts, and like a button down or two, and went out to raise some money. We ended up getting super lucky. We raised about $5 million for a seed round, which in 2006 was a pretty decent sized seed round, and uh, got our business kind of up and running. So along the way, we had we had done a pretty solid job. We were named top startups of New York City by Inc. Magazine. I was featured in like Entrepreneur, and it was actually just a really cool and exciting ride. So um, Ignition was like a premium company in the co-working space. It was in the same vein as like an industrious or an elevated version of a WeWork. Beautiful. It was absolutely gorgeous. Your office. Oh, thank you. Yeah, we uh, actually won an award for best office interior in the world uh, the year we opened. So that was actually really cool. Our head of design, super smart guy. Uh, I was lucky enough to co-found the company with a guy named Stephen DeRosa, who's a really smart attorney. And we just had like this very cool background. And it was just this like incredibly exciting story to come from almost nothing, make it to New York City. And kind of like, if you can make it here, you can make it anywhere. And that was like really exciting. We ended up getting like really high level people on our board. There's a guy, Anthony Westright, who was on our board, and if you're aware in the real estate world, he owned the largest portfolio of properties in the Roslyn, Virginia area, but he's owned like the Helmsley Building and Park Avenue Assets. And uh, we ended up having like, from inception, we did a great job on construction, we came in on time and on budget, and then uh, we reached profitability by like six months into operations, and we were profitable every month since. And then we had like, everyone was very aware of the WeWork crash. And that was like a really interesting timing for us because at that time we had it probably, you know, we had another round of funding that was closing after a seed round. And our company was worth probably about 35 million post money. And half the round came in and then we work kind of came and like hit us. And that was really challenging. The investors pulled out and we like kind of scrapped things back together. We were expanding into a 50,000 square foot office space on Park Avenue. And we had to pull back from that and we were like still doing well. But as things retracted, we went to expand into Manhattan. And that was early in the year. But when COVID hit, 
it was just like a super rough time where from March to April, we lost 80% of our revenue in one month, which is just like a scenario that no business person plans for. Like there's not like a world pandemic and New York City is the epicenter of a pandemic that you plan for with your investors. So so tell, so what was your, your occupancy rate is the kind of like the main metric in your business or one of the main metrics, right? What were you guys at before COVID? Yeah, so it, I always do like a year over year comparison because that's the best way to look at things with a cyclical nature. It, we were probably at like 90, 95% a year ago. And then we were down to like, 20%. For people listening who don't know, what's considered good? Uh, I think 80% is probably considered good. We were doing profit margins like north of 30%. So it, like a gold standard in profit margins in our industry is probably something from the mid to high 20s, low 30s. It, so we were hitting like metrics as good as almost any other company out there on a per square foot basis. You also, if I remember correctly, had a really interesting and very cool group of tenants in your space yeah (laughs) um we had like everybody from like a multi-billion dollar company compass that was in the space we had uh producers that they didn't make the porn in our space but they actually like edited the porn in our space and i think they were really good they won like a u porn award that they like hung up in their office so i mean like and to be honest they were like one of our best tenants like paid rent on time every month the coolest people you could meet and uh it, like one of their co-founders was like a harvard grad they were like the smartest like porn company i've ever like imagined and, uh, that was pretty fun um we had it, <laughs> you know we had uh, a company called charity which was amazing they were like a 50 person team of like mainly like rabbis they were a for-profit company that raised money for nonprofits, and it was run by a guy named yehuda and like you know when you're working on these spaces all of your tenants like at least to me become like close personal friends and like you grab coffee with them in the mornings and it's just it was really fucking cool to get to see these companies that were all startups and you could see some grew into really big companies over a couple of years and you could see some that didn't do so well and I mean, it was just a very, very cool ride along the way and, you know, made a lot of friends and made a lot of good connections. And there were just so many different types of people in the space. So then COVID hits, your stats are excellent, gold standard in the industry. You're looking to expand into Manhattan and the WeWork debacle hits, which I think for for everyone else, like if there is a massive scandal or failure in your industry, investors immediately get spooked. And I don't think you could draw up a worse scenario for co-working than, than we work. And then right after that, COVID hits. So funding gets tough and then you lose 80% of your revenue. Tell us about that. Yeah. So to quantify this, to my knowledge, WeWork is the largest loss of capital in a privately held company in the United States in the history of the United States. So fastest and largest drop in value, right? Yeah. In private company history. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. Like, and you put that in your industry. So contrasting, like, I I don't know the exact numbers, but like Theranos lost less than $10 billion. And that was considered to be like one of the biggest scandals in the startup world of all time. And WeWork lost something in the neighborhood of $40 billion in valuation. 
when, when they put out their documents, their IPO, I just remember like one of our investors coming to me and being like, what the fuck is this? This is atrocious. Like, is this how your industry works? <laughs> and I was just like, it, you know, it's this really like tough catch 22 because they were like, it, it, was, it was a bad document in a lot of senses and it spooked a lot of people and it was it, what caused them to have to retract their IPO. And, it, you know, just having that conversation with investors was like very challenging at the time. And it, uh, yeah, so they pulled out of that. And then it, um, going to the loss of revenue, it, we stuck it out for like three months, four months, because when this first hit, you have no idea how long it's going to be. And the largest goal that we had as an organization, myself and my co-founder, Stephen, it was to retain the maximum amount of people after what we thought would be like four weeks or maybe a month. And, you know, fuck it. If you have to lose two months of revenue, no big deal. We talked with our investors. They were on board and they were cool with it. But as time went by, nothing got better. And when July came around, it was like July 1st. And for everyone that wasn't aware, you weren't allowed to operate an office space. So it was actually illegal for anybody but essential businesses to operate an office space in New York City at the time. What were your customers saying to you during this time? Because I know a lot of people were like, oh, and across the industry, companies are like, can I not pay rent? Do I have to pay rent? And like different landlords were telling them different things. How did you handle that with your customers? Yeah, I mean, our, our customers aren't, you know, at the time that they weren't, the billion dollar companies, they weren't even hundred million dollar companies. They were companies that are, you know, 20, 30, 50 people that really have cash flow issues of their own. And so for the most part, if someone needed it, we were willing to work with them. And that looked a little different for every tenant. And it looked a little different depending on what their revenue stream is, what industry they were in. You know, there was one tenant that put on these really high end chef experiences throughout the city and throughout the country. And it's like, you get it. They, they can't put on those experiences. If you try to squeeze blood from stone, it's not going to happen. Other tenants, uh, you know, if they're still operational, you took it like, you know, person by person or company by company and try to make a judgment call on what the right thing to do was. And what about your landlord? Uh, our landlord uh, w- was pretty, pretty strict of wanting to get paid. <laughs> yeah, because that, that to me... That to me is the big kicker, right? It's the building owners that dictated how a lot of these retail businesses fared through COVID. Obviously, your business is such an extreme example because you're taking large space and putting multiple tenants inside of that space. But if your landlord had been forgiving, was that something that you asked of your landlord? And I'm sure it was. And then why were they saying no? I mean, now I would imagine their buildings are sitting vacant now. Yeah, so that's a great question. I don't fully know the answer today, so I don't want to misspeak as to what they're doing with the space. But our landlord purchased our building in June of 2019 at what one might say is very high watermark for the market. And so it, this is all public knowledge. You know, they acquired it. it was it, When they acquired it, I think that they had some pressure from their financial backers to do certain things. But then without being certain of it, I think 
being honest, it may have actually played against us that we had such a nice build out of space where it, there may have been an incentive for them to trade the space over. Or to, you know, I don't know exactly what they're going to do with it, but for whatever reason, they, uh, they weren't willing to like give like any on the rent. So in a lot of senses, I would honestly say, while it was disappointing at the time, I think it's something that I'm okay with because I think that we made the correct decision to move forward. And what I was saying with Stephen is July 1 came and we were allowed to open for business. And we sent out like an email to all of our tenants. We're like, we're open for business. And like two thirds of them were like, yeah, like I just can't pay rent. And we took a look at it and it, the situation that we were in, we had just gone like, I don't know, three or four months without getting any revenue really down 80% and we're still going to be down 80%. And there's no foreseeable future as to when you get past this. And we sat down and looked at it as basically at that point in time with 20% paying customers, we're functionally starting the business over. And we're starting the business over in an area where the ability for our business to turn a profit is outside of our control. And we probably had like one of the best investor groups you could imagine. They sat down with me and my co-founder and they were like, look, if you need an extra year of runway, we'll fund it. But we need to know all collectively that this is the right thing to do. And everyone needs to be on the same page. But you know, if you as the co-founders say, this isn't the right investment for us, we, we won't hold anything against that as well. We respect that as well. And from my perspective, throughout the entirety of my business, I had always incredibly strongly believed that we'd be successful. We would grow into like a multi-billion dollar company. It, we would do the right things to execute. And for the first time, that was outside of my control. And the first time, given the totality of the situation, I knew that we couldn't make a promise that things would be any better in six months or a year. And so that was what I did was very honestly tell them that I don't believe we have any certainty, even if we fund another year of the business to wake up a year from now and not have the same conversation with the same capital call. And everyone sat down together and just, uh, you know, very honest, very direct. Uh, collectively, we decide the best thing to do is to shut the business down because we might get things to be 100% occupied, but the value of real estate might drop 30%, and we might run as fast as we can to break even. And so from my standpoint, and from my co-founder standpoint, I always think that a co-founder needs to understand, one, you should always be like super honest and direct with investors if you're having a hard time. But also, at some point in time, when you're facing the wrong uphill battle, the right thing to do is to shut something down it, because there are just some businesses that, you know, no matter how well you perform as an operational co-founder or CEO, you can't make it go forward. And, and that was the choice we made. That was what we did. Uh, really quick, before we talk about the decision to shut down, can you speak just quickly to the raw numbers? I think there's probably a lot of people listening to the show that aren't familiar with how much money you raised and how much money you lost. What was your revenue before COVID? You said it dropped 80%. What were the actual numbers, sort of the net loss, including your fundraise and then the drop in revenue? Yeah. I mean, we lost about $6 million in investor money and, and that's fucking hard. 
you know, even outside of your control, that's hard. And I think, you know, our investors were like as kind as you can imagine. They were like, we do not put any blame on the operational team. Like you guys didn't cause a world pandemic. It, but yeah, losing $6 million was like terrible. Uh, we were doing about 130000 a month a year ago. And we were probably doing like 20 something thousand a month uh, towards the end. So that part was really challenging. But at the same time, it was like a very clear direction of this would be a very strong uphill battle. And if you're going to restart the business and basically start from zero, like to give you a better quantifiable metric, that was the worst month we had with the exception of the first month when we opened. Our second month of business was better than our last month. So, I mean, we were literally starting at zero. And so, like, one of the things I kind of learned along the way is I, I paid my way through, like, undergrad and law school in part playing poker. And you know, like, sometimes you have an amazing fucking hand. And the best thing you can do as a poker player is when you realize your hand is the second best, no matter how good it was, it's no longer profitable. And you're just going to go down the wrong path. And I think collectively our investors, the co-founders, the team, we all believed that the honest and ethical and correct thing to do it was for us to move forward and go into things there next. And like, it was really disappointing that it ended up being that way instead of like, you know, being like Steven's company that's like really successful. But at the same time, like I felt that our team operated with a very high level of integrity and, you know, I'd like to believe that we could go back to our investor base and they respect us as operators. And so for us, that was super important. I think it's a super mature reaction to it. What was the, what was the phrase you said to me? I was like, because once you made that decision, you guys move quickly, right? Oh, you yeah, 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 yeah. So the phrase is, uh, if you're going to eat shit, don't nibble. <laughs> yeah, but it's it's true. I, I think a lot of people in this situation would say this is really painful and they're going to drag their feet, not because they enjoy pain, but because it's just really hard to let go. And so I, I really, I thought that was really commendable that you said you had that conversation with the board and you made the decision and then you, you were just like, all right, let's do it. There's no reason to drag this out. Let's get it over as quickly as possible because it is going to be painful and let's just move through it. Yeah. Honestly, I give a lot of credit to my co-founder. He was, he's always been like a really smart, really logical, even keel guy. And, uh, you know, his name's Steven as well. It, but, it, you know, he's always kind of like very methodical. Yeah. I mean, that, that's, that's where good co-founders come from is being named Steven, for sure. Um, but, you know, he was really methodical. He was like, look, uh, we got to shut it down. Let's do it as quickly as possible. And you know, it was definitely the right play. You know, you, you don't want to wallow in it, man. Like, it, you know, your, your thing didn't go the right way. Like, it moved forward. And also, I, mean, I think for anybody out there that's running a company, whether successful or not, it, you have to realize that a lot of your success or failure is going to be dictated by things outside of your control. And you got to really enjoy the process. you got to really love kind of the culture and building things. And, you know, for anyone that might listen that has a company that is failing during COVID, I, I would just say, like, it's not something you need to be embarrassed or uh, feel a personal poor self-reflection. I think it's just something that is a tough situation. And if you're in the retail space, you're getting fucking hit with it. 
this. I mean, if you're if you own a restaurant, if you own a department store, it's not like uh, it, you know we're the only company out there. I mean, there's a laundry list of like Neiman Marcus, Brooks Brothers, uh, anything that's in the retail space is going to be hurt. There's a lot of other industries that are hurt that aren't. So I mean, I I just think people should definitely take it with a grain of salt as much as you can. You know, the case could be made for in the long term this being a positive thing for co-working spaces as a lot of companies move to more remote working and 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 thus allow their workers to have like a, they just rent office space for their workers to come in and work part-time and whatnot did you guys talk about that and how did that factor in or was it just like hey that could happen but who knows when that'll actually come to fruition and we could have lost a lot more money by that point in time and we don't that's not even a guaranteed thing that's almost exactly how the conversation went right yeah i mean it, our board was like a top tier finance guy who ran a very, very successful financial operation, top tier real estate guys as we talked about. And we think, honestly, I think co-working will do well in the long run, but what time frame the long run looks like is really questionable. And in our opinion, it was going to be at least two years until you're going to start to really regain traction in the New York City area. And so to kind of chug along for two years of potentially losses at a seed stage company or a series A company is a really challenging prospect for an investor. And I think as entrepreneurs, it's also a really challenging prospect of if you have to wait two years in your current role to get your next round of funding, and that's a maybe, that, that, that's just like ice skating uphill, man. It's a, you know, it, it's a long wait for something that's not guaranteed. And, you know, what do you do in that two years? I mean, like, it, you know, it, and, and that's the other piece of it is like, it, you know, what happens if you and your co-founder either collectively or separately find something else that makes more economic sense to do? Like you have to be fair to the investors, right? Like you can't, you can't take on an extra million or $2 million in investor capital and then four months later, wake up and say, thanks for the capital, I'm starting something else in, uh, you know, in a totally new venture. I mean, that, that's not ethical. So, you know, looking at all the dynamics, that, that was the conversation we had. I do think co-working will do well into the future. I think that you need to end up getting management deals for the near term. And I think it's probably going to be a couple of years. I mean, you know, at least 18 months until you're really going to be able to get traction on it. Yeah. So one of the questions I wanted to ask you coming in, and you've kind of covered it. And I think in a lot of ways, you are demonstrating just how you're a shining example of how to take something like this, how to react to a crisis like this, right? To rip off the Band-Aid, evaluate it unemotionally, and then do what you know will serve your stakeholders, yourself, your customers, your investors. I want to pry a little bit more just into the emotions and the personal ramifications of making that decision when you were in it. You know, I think just your willingness to come on the show demonstrates this a lot, but can you speak to the emotions and your ego and your personal perception of what your reputation, how your reputation would be impacted? I think that with founders of companies, especially in startups, the amount of ego at play is significant in a lot of cases. I think you've already demonstrated how, how you have a great handle on that, but could you speak to those emotions in your decision-making process?
process? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, the easiest way to talk about it is maybe like my girlfriend, right? Like, it, so whenever you meet a girl and, or like if a girl meets a guy and she meets a guy who's like CEO of a successful company in New York City, their dream is always that you'll move into your mom's basement in Pittsburgh for a couple months while your company shuts down. Like that's just like uh, every girl's like dream scenario is that. It, so, you know, it, yeah, it's, it, it's a huge fucking hit to your ego. But at the same time, I think realistically, on, on the way up, you've got to surround yourself with a great group of people. And I think I've just been really lucky from friends to investors to my girlfriend who I'm still with. And, you know, somehow I think she still loves me. Um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, if you surround yourself with the right group of people and you don't allow yourself to kind of get caught up in the hype of, you know, you run XYZ company and you're worth X or Y and you're really focused on like it, just being a human being first. I think that really uh, has helped out immensely for me. And yeah, it, it was like, it's like a fucking nightmare to have spent like a few months in it, my mom's basement. I'm not there anymore, but just when it first started, I wanted to get back and make sure she was okay. She's older, but um, it very hard on the ego initially but at the same time if you surround yourself with the right group of people and i think that's everything from your friends to your family to even your investor group it uh it really makes it a lot better and like for me personally like i've got a great group of friends whether it's like steven on this call or like i'm still really good friends with at least 10 guys from like fifth grade and it, you know you call them up and to these guys, like, it doesn't matter if you're a doctor, if you're a CEO, or you're like, you know, living on a couch. Like, uh, it, it's just surrounding yourself with the right people that really care about you and respect you for you. And also those same guys and those same group of friends would tell me to go fuck myself like anytime I got a big head. And I think that it kind of uh, played really well in both directions. You're speaking to such a specific thing that we've touched on in this show several times. The idea being it's so important who you surround yourself with early on. It's so important who you hire early on. It's so important who your investors are early on so that you can remain grounded so that you can make really hard business decisions that are selfless, like the one that you made. And we've talked a lot about the examples of companies that haven't surrounded themselves with great people early on or haven't hired inclusive voices early on and have really rode this wave up of becoming the superstar of their company and really embodied the brand themselves. And therefore some of the decision-making when they get up to the top of the mountain or the perceived top of the mountain have been misguided and they wouldn't have been had they done. Cause ultimately the decision that you had to make was really, really challenging. Even though you sounds like you made it pretty well, that's a really tough decision to make. Anyway, I just wanted to make that point, tie it to the rest of our episodes. Cause we've spoken about this, how it's manifested poorly and a lot of other examples. And I think you show that if you do the right things early on, you're able to make harder decisions and not have it be clouded by your position in the company or your position in the world. Yeah, I mean, I think that you're hitting on the core of it, right? And I've always been somebody who believes on like staying humble. I think maybe, I'm sure I'm not the most humble person out there. I, mean, I'm, I, I would say- I'm No, you're not. Very- <laughs> very, very far from the most humble person. It, but I, I think at least internally, it, um, it, it's good to like, you know, 
take yourself with a grain of salt. You know what I mean? Like being humble is not the right word for me, but like not taking yourself too seriously probably is. And I, I just think you're humble. I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. You are, you are an incredibly grounded person. I think that's, uh, that's come through very clearly here, but yeah, you're, you're right. It's, it's incredibly important to have that. And I think that emotion that you talked about in the decision process there's like a, there's a level of fear that a lot of founders have. It's the fear of failure, but it's the fear of telling people about failure and you, you fear you're going to be judged. And I think, tell me if I'm wrong here, but I think the people that actually care about you and the people that you know, well, they don't care. They just want the best for you. And if you're going through a hard time, they're going to empathize, right? And they're going to support you. That part should be easier than you're afraid of it being. And the people that might judge you, fuck them. They're not people that you're close with anyways. And you kind of have to have thick skin and you're not really going to be interacting with them anyways. But I mean, I found that in last year when we were going through a tough fundraise and I kind of isolated myself from everyone else. Your same idea. It was like a fear of not being able to say like, oh yeah, we're crushing it and got multiple term sheets or whatever. But the people around me didn't care. And I think you're, you're highlighting that, that like your, your true friends and your true network, your closest network is there to, to bring you up when you're down and knock you down when you're up. Yeah, and you know what's hard? I think what's really hard for co-founders is in the startup world, there's such an emphasis on this fake it till you make it. And you're always trying to put your best foot forward, even in the most genuine manner. And you get into this habit of constantly like turning lemons into lemonade or like, you know, there's a giant pile of shit and you look at it and there's like, there must be a pony around here somewhere. You know, you're like always trying to look for the positives, but realistically, you have to be honest as well. And even if you're comfortable putting the best spin on things, you just can't get hung up in that fake it till you make it, always pretending things are really good. And like, I can tell you a month or two before we shut down, I had a phone call with like one of the CEO of one of the five largest co-working spaces. And it was like a Zoom call. And it was just kind of like touching base, talking about the industry. And he opened the call and he was like, hey, like, how are you doing? And I was like, oh, we're fucked. It, and it like, but when I said that, it like took away all of the pretense. We had a very real conversation. It, uh, I mean, he's running a very big company and he was just like as cool as you could imagine about it. it but by being genuine with people, you just put yourself in a better spot. And when you get in a position where you're afraid of what people think, you live every day what you think the experience will be like when you say that you failed or you say that you've messed up. And you'll just sit with that and like relive worst case scenarios for days, weeks, or months on end. And realistically, like if something didn't go your way, uh, you go out there, you gave it 100% of what you could have done. I don't believe anybody should feel embarrassed about you know having an outcome not be the outcome they wish they had. I think you should be ashamed if you were dishonest. I think you should be ashamed, feel you were lazy. But you know, when you put your best into something and it doesn't work out, like fuck, like you probably learned a bunch. You did everything you can to provide investors a positive return on capital. Hopefully, you were a good boss, co-founder. And I mean, like that's the other thing I'd say: is surround yourself with good people again. My co-founder was a really good guy. Um, you know, we've ended things, and anytime that he wants to talk as a friend, as a business person, like you know, we're still there for each other. I think again, those people and being honest and genuine with yourself. 
So uh, I think a good measure of how well you feel like you handled not just the end, but also the beginning and the middle of the story is, would you feel comfortable asking your current investors for money for a future endeavor? Yeah, I, mean, I think, uh, yeah, I think that it would make sense. I mean, I think it would have to be an endeavor that lined up with their interests, but you know, they, they've said to me, you know, different investors have said agnostic of how this went, they'd be interested in, you know, reinvesting. So I assume it would make sense. Absolutely. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about that. Uh, you have been an entrepreneur before Ignitia office. I know that you're going to be one again sure. and it's happened probably sooner than you might've guessed for yourself when you had to make this decision. What's next for Josh? So uh, without like going into way too much detail, because we're like super early on into it, I'm looking at, you know, starting another company, right? And without lending too much specificity, I used to do Brazilian jiu-jitsu and I did the jiu-jitsu under the Gracie family. If you're familiar with who they are. Not everybody will be, although Phineas is a big fan, so he does. But uh, yeah, why don't you explain what, what both of those things are? Okay. So... If anyone's familiar with the UFC or the Ultimate Fighting Championship, it was founded by a group of people that are the family of the Gracies. So the first few Ultimate Fighting Championships were won by one of the guys, Hoist Gracie, and their family invented Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, which is also referred to as Gracie Jiu-Jitsu. It's considered to be probably, if not definitely, the best form of ground combat in the world. And every UFC fighter in the world today utilizes jiu-jitsu, Brazilian jiu-jitsu from the Gracie family. And the UFC was originally set up as a demonstration for Hoist Gracie, who was like a 170-pound guy, to fight 300-pound dudes. And he like went through like five of them in one night. So very long story short, I'm, uh, you know, looking at creating a combat sport with the Gracie family. We're in the early, early stages of things. And, you know, kind of talking early conversations about it. But I think that's a really cool project that we're looking at. Um, You know, from that perspective, that's very exciting. And it's, I feel really lucky because they came to me with the idea. And I think it's going to be a really cool concept once it's, you know, kind of totally finalized and out there. But that's something that's like very exciting for us. What's your, this is off topic. I mean, it's on topic, but it's off business school topic. What's your connection to the Gracie family? Why did they come to you, a CEO of a co-working startup? So this story is uh, probably pretty like weird, but I was like really out of shape, maybe like three years ago. And I decided I used to wrestle in high school that I was going to try out like jujitsu. So I go online, Google, and I see like Henzo Gracie Academy. And I'm like too out of shape to actually join a class, but I'm like, I'll book a private lesson. So I end up calling the Henzo Gracie Academy and he's got like 50 academies around the world. And if you know who this guy is, he's considered to be like a demigod in this world. Like he's like the best trainer. He's trained multiple UFC world champions like George St. Pierre, Matt Sarah, Roy Nelson everyone like that. So I call up and I'm like, you know, I'd like to book a private session. They're like, well, who do you want to book it with? And I'm like, oh, if I have my choice, like Kenzo Gracie. So like very long story short, uh, he happened to be there at the time and like overhear someone be like, hey, I'd like to train with Kenzo Gracie. 
And I hear him in the background, he's like, I'll train the guy. You know, the secretary's like, this like never happens, but Henzo says he'll train you. And I'm like, okay, like how much is it? And I hear him in the background be like, very expensive. And the secretary's like, very expensive. I'm like, all right, like how much could it be? Like, I'll come out, I'll come train. They're like, when can you train next Tuesday? So I go to the gym in Midtown, which is like known as the Blue Basement. And I get there and I go to the staff and I'm like, yeah, I've got like a private training session with Henzo Gracie. And they're like, uh, like, keep in mind, like, I'm probably 20, 30 pounds heavier than I am today. Like, uh, are you, like, a UFC fighter, like, way in the off season? And I'm like, no, like, I've never done jujitsu before. So they're like, okay, like, I, I don't think you understand. You're in the Henzo Gracie Academy, but you don't have a session with Henzo. You probably booked it with someone else. And I was like, totally respectfully, uh, maybe someone played a joke on me, but I think I do. And so they text him, and they're like, this fucking guy has a training session with Henzo Gracie. So to give you an idea of the background, it's like me, there's like a like a UFC fighters down there. It's like off hours, like 2 p.m. There's like an Olympic boxer. And the staff calls everyone in. We're like, guys, like, this guy has a training session with Henzo Gracie. And they're like, so how long have you been doing jiu-jitsu? And I was like, this is my first time. And they're like, are you related to like, the crown prince of Dubai or something like that. And I'm like, no, no, I'm not. I'm like, why? And they're like, well, like, you know, Henzo is a personal trainer to him and, you know, he gets flown over there on like uh, occasion to train like some shake in Dubai. And so at this point, I'm like thinking in my head, like, oh my gosh, like I signed up for like a private training session. Like in my head, I was like $500 for a session, maybe a thousand. And like now I'm like thinking like 3,000, 5,000, 10,000, like yeah, this could be like really You're like, expensive. oh shit, maybe I should cancel. <laughs> <It's cool>. so, <laughs> so they're like, all right, like go get warmed up on the mats. And he gets there. And so if, if you think about this place, it's like underground, there's stairs. And he gets there and, it, you know, the trainer's like, no one ever gets a session with him. So it's like totally like not normal. And the, I hear him talking to the staff. And, like, he gets there, he's excited, he's like, who am I training today? Because I guess, like, only, like, really elite fighters would, like, call up and ask for, like, a session with this guy. And, like, Henzo, like, I, you know, I'm sorry, it's, like, a white belt that hasn't trained before. I hear him be like, you gotta be kidding me. And we're like, you know, something like that. And at this point, like, this is the most scared I've ever been as an adult. I'm literally thinking, like, how much would I pay for them to let me out? It, like, if, like, you know, if this is, like, a bad mistake, like, how can I get out of here? So he ends up coming over, is like the nicest guy, does a private training session with me. Um, and at the end, I was like, how much do I owe you? And he was like, my friend, I ask that you just become a member of our gym. You owe me nothing. And I'd just like to take a picture of us together. And like, it was just like the most nice, genuine, exceptionally cool thing. And he ended up putting me to train with a guy that his name's Luca. And Luca is... Uh, Henzo's business partner and everything. He's like a fourth degree black belt. And so I ended up training there for like uh, with Luca and for almost about two years. And, you know, when you have this relationship in jujitsu with like a coach and like a, whether you want to say a sensei and a, a you know, proje or whatever it is, you get really like a good bond with somebody because it, there's a strange dynamic of like whenever somebody could like break your arm or choke you, you tap out. And in one sense, you're saying, like, let's go again. But in another sense, 
you're saying like the only reason you didn't break my arm or strangle me is because you were generous enough to stop when I asked. And this sounds like a little bit of a strange thing, but you really have to have a lot of trust with somebody where, I mean, to be doing something like that. So you end up building a really good group of friends. And so over the years, I uh, was trained with them. I earned a blue belt under them. And, you know, we just became friends. So anyways, that, that's kind of how it came about to become friends with them. But it's really interesting. Like, you know, these are some of the best fighters in hand-to-hand -hand combat in the world. Anyways, it's been like a really cool vibe. And uh, I'm excited about working with them. They, they seem like really smart, really thoughtful individuals that, uh, you know, that's kind of how I got to know them. That's amazing. I have so many follow-up questions, but I think I'm not going to continue to go down the jujitsu hole, but I'm really do you excited. Do you do jujitsu? No. Are you a fight guy? I'm a follower of all sports, and I have gone into some rabbit holes about the Gracie family. And so, yeah, I just, I'm fascinated by the genesis of different sports. And I think Brazilian jiu-jitsu is one that has a really unique story in that it was founded by this family and the family seems to be never ending. There's so many different members and they're all top tier Brazilian jiu-jitsu artists. And I don't know, I just, I've nerded out about it. I'm not a fighter myself, but. Are you any more or less afraid of failure going into your next venture given your Ignisha experience? You know, this is actually an interesting thing. I haven't really been that afraid of failure in business for a really long time. And I think that comes from me losing my dad when I was like 22. And my dad was about 55 when he passed away of cancer. And that was really a very challenging time. But in the same sense, I really learned that like the brevity of life and realistically in the grand scheme of things like if a business is successful or fails it's not something to be afraid of but what you should be focused on is enjoying yourself along the way and so that was like the biggest thing i took in a positive sense from him passing it was just realizing how very important it is to spend your time doing the things that you believe in that you enjoy and being around the people that you like because you just don't have like an infinite amount of time. There's no guarantee with that. So I wouldn't say I'm more or less afraid of failure because I, I think if I was afraid of failure, I probably wouldn't have came to New York with like one suitcase. Like statistically that probably wasn't that likely to work out, but I would say that I believe I'm a better operator. I think that, I've achieved with my team some really good things. And I think that I'm still probably not terribly afraid to fail. Although this is my first failure as a business, I don't think that I'm more afraid to fail less. But I do feel good about having done all that I could in this venture. I do feel excited to kind of not lose a step and move on regardless of what's next. Uh, you know, even before I had thoughts of working with the Gracie family, knowing that uh, you know I would start another business and that probably was the path that I would go down. So I don't think it's changed my tolerance for risk or failure. That's great, that's great. Josh, I wanna be respectful of your time. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks guys, this is really cool. Class dismissed. <laughs>
are wondering how you can support this show, the best thing you can do is subscribe wherever you're listening to this podcast right now. Hit the subscribe button so you'll be notified when we come out with a new episode.